everybody has to be comfortable on the phone doing what we do. You know, there is a mental hurdle. It's a performance at the end of the day. When you pick up a phone, and it's my music background, right? There's a spotlight on you and you're playing a solo. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm excited to be joined today by Alex Cook. Alex is a former professional musician that entered the world of recruitment age 29. After 18 months in an agency in the UK, he transitioned to New York City and started on a journey that in three and a half years would see him become a million dollar a year biller as a biotech recruitment specialist. Alex is now the CEO of Phase 3 Search, a biotech search firm that he founded in 2018. In the last five years, he's retained 95% of his clients and generated 6.5 million in sales. Alex, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Mark. It's great to be here. So you're in San Diego. How does uh, a boy from the UK end up uh, recruiting from San Diego? That is that is a great question, Mark. Uh, and I've got to be honest, um, when I was a kid, I don't think I could have ever imagined getting out of the UK, let alone um, living in paradise. Um, so the, the short version is, um, as part of my professional music career, I ended up working on cruise ships, traveling around the world, um, and when I was there, met with an HR team. It was actually for the Disney company. So uh, Mickey Mouse signed my checks, basically. Um, and they said, look, you like people and you can sell stuff. So, you know, why don't you try talent acquisition as a career change? Um, so I talked my way into a job in the UK, set up um, a European division as part of a team of three um, for a small company there. Um then thought, you know what, let's go bigger or go home. So um, didn't want to stay at home. So I went to New York City um, with another company and in two and a half years set up another division for them, um, moved to a new agency. Um, and then after a, a year of running that first division, which we just created, it was really a question of why didn't I do it for myself? So navigated the US visa system, um, which was extremely complex, but um, got there. And after a year of running the firm in New York, I uh, really looked around for other places to live. And it's not that I didn't enjoy New York. It's just that uh, New York City is is particularly uncompromising. Um, and you really have to be uh, lasers every single day. Just there is no, there's not a whole lot of peace and relaxation in New York. So San Diego is the obvious choice. All right. Wow. That's a... Uh... In two minutes, your your entire career history. That's cool. I liked, so I went to San Diego for the first time back in April. I was, I had the honor of being invited to be a keynote speaker at the Pinnacle Society, uh, you know, spring conference that was. And San Diego is absolutely beautiful. So, um, yeah, I do envy you. The weather was perfect. Um, but I back up a second because I'm fascinated by this um or like your early career as a professional musician, I feel like it's it's funny. We we were speaking about this. I was speaking the, about this with some of my clients the other day that a lot of us end up in recruitment. Are we're doing nothing related to what we actually studied in university, right? And a lot of us come from. So I studied philosophy. We had ah. people who've done fine art. We've had people with all kinds of different and interesting backgrounds. But you started out as a musician, which is, I mean, it's pretty tough to make a living as a musician, isn't it? It, it, it really is. Actually, I, it's, there are so many parallels between the world of music and actually succeeding in the world of music and succeeding in the world of recruitment. Um, the number one thing is, you know, it's not, yes, you, you've got to know your stuff, right? You've got to be a master of your domain. Um, in my case, I was a drummer. I majored in jazz. Um, and ultimately I learned very quickly that just jazz wasn't going to pay the bills. So I started learning other styles, other things and, and very quickly adapted to something else. But the thing that I think people get wrong is, you know, if you're a musician, it's not about sitting in your bedroom, playing your guitar for 10,000 hours. I was a drummer, so no one wants to hear drums for 10,000 hours. And, um, it was really a case of people people were the key because if people enjoyed having you around if they had a fun experience when you were there if the music you played was on point then you got asked back 
And then it was just a case of, of kind of taking a lot of those skills into the world of recruitment. And I guess what I'm talking about, you know, in, in broader terms, people might call networking, but I've always hated the term networking because I think, how about going for a coffee with someone or having a beer or just having a human connection with another human being? And it's funny because that has underpinned my approach to recruitment as well. Um, and, and the more that I've gone up the levels and through the levels, it's really become about, you know, that connection uh, with another person. Mm. That's super interesting because I wouldn't have thought of success in music being, um, you know, that networking and connecting with people being fundamental. But of course, that is a skill that helps you succeed in anything, right? So um, can you say a little more about how you intentionally seek to build connections with people? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, um, I think the most interesting thing about anybody you meet is their story, right? So actually being fascinated by someone's journey, right? And if you, if you take a step back from and put your recruitment hats on, right? Um, what I spend much of my time doing is thinking about, is this person a good leader, right? What, what characteristics do they bring to the table? So it's, it's not just ones and zeros, a, a technical skill set, right? It's, it's okay. They got the technical. Now, how are they going to knit this team together? How are we going to marry this leader to this culture? And so what I try to do is really to get in and understand the fundamental points of their philosophy when it comes to how they build their teams, how they shape their organizations, what are the sorts of challenges they've been through before, have they led transformation, what was the environment that they were in? Because, you know, a leader from a Fortune 100 is not the same as the startup leader, the same you know, the other way around. And um, can people move between those domains? Sure can, but, you know, there's a failure right there. So, mm. you know, if we're thinking with a client and we spent the time with the client to really understand what is the situation? Like, is this, is this kind of status quo? I mean, I'm going to be honest. I don't think recruiters get hired to find status quo people, right? I think we get sure. hired to find leaders that fix things, transform things, change things, come in and be a leader. So we've got to figure that out. Um, awesome. I'm not sure I answered and, your question, but <laughs> yeah, no, if you did in what well, you started to answer it, I think there's more to unpack there because so I, I, I've often pondered this is the ability to connect with people. Is that innate and you either have it or you don't, or is it a skill that you can develop and improve? You know, cause it, I guess it sounds like you do it naturally it's one of your gifts and it's helped you do well in the music business and then it's transferred into the recruiting business. But if you were training someone or coaching someone on how to connect with other people quickly, I guess you, you've given us this, the, a clue. The start is you have to have a sincere interest in, and curiosity to learn about them and their journey. So that's the first one. But sure. what comes after that? Yeah, um, it's, that's actually an, an, an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, I've trained so many people over the years, Mark, and, and I can guarantee you that they've all got different personalities. Yes. Um, you know, and, and not even the same phenotype of person. So we're not talking about, you know, everybody being extroverted, running into a room and bringing the energy or things like that. Because, you know, in the, in the world of biotech, I might be dealing with an analytical scientist who is the very opposite of extrovert, right? Who doesn't yes. want, you know, a fireball turning up to interview them. They need somebody that is going to meet them on their level. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably what I would say is it's about being a chameleon. And if you are introverted, it's about being able to turn up enough to connect with somebody who is an extrovert. If you are extroverted, it is reading the room and being able to dial yourself down to be able to meet the person at the level they're at. And, you know, the U.S. is a good example of this where, you know, certain geographical regions have different communication styles. 
like New York City is bullet points. It's like bang, 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 let's go, right? But if you did that on the West Coast in California, and these are generalizations, of course, but if you did it in the West Coast, it wouldn't go down as well. So you have to have that adaptability of communication style and approach to be able to, to connect. That makes a lot of sense. Totally. Yeah, of course, when you put it like that, I guess it is like your musician being able to play, you're like you're a drummer, but you can play different genres of music, right? You're, you might prefer playing jazz, but you could play rock, you could play, you know, uh, funk or, or whatever, pop, whatever is called for in order to create the energy that you want that's going to satisfy that particular audience and what they came for. So, um, yeah, it makes total sense. I, I think I'm an ambivert. I think in some situations I'm extroverted. Like I can stand up in front of a group of people and I can present, but I actually am quite introverted in many ways at the same time. So, uh, yeah, so I, I, maybe that helps to be able to go in both directions. Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling because I consider myself an ambivert as well. And, okay. and, most, and most people who meet me go, you're an extrovert. And I'm like, that's because you don't see me, right? When I have to go home and sit in the corner with like a book and not say anything to anyone. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I get totally that. I, I, I'm very happy in my own company and um, reading. I read a lot. I, I like to think and process things kind of quietly. Um, and it takes me longer to do things because I'm think I I think a lot about what I'm doing, which isn't is kind of a handicap in recruiting, where it's like you have to take a lot of action. Um, but uh, anyway, that's the way I'm 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 wired. So, Alex, tell me this fascinating journey. So you, uh, Mickey Mouse told you that you should get a job in recruiting. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. you uh, so so you you entered the UK recruitment, you know, typical recruitment agency world. Yeah. How did you then sort of um, progress into executive search and into being a specialist in biotech? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, I mean, my, my first agency, I, I really had no idea what I was getting into, Mark, right? I'd never even met another recruiter in my life. Um, and I'm going to be honest, I, I approached it, I approached it wrong. You know, I approached it like somebody that was a master of music. Um, so I, I swaggered in uh, and very quickly was humbled, um, so, uh, which is probably a good thing. Um, I mean, honestly, you know, got into a recruitment firm, six weeks basic training, and then someone gave me a phone and said, we're going to build a, a European division. Um, we have no database. We have no candidates. Um, we've got some LinkedIn accounts. Go and make it happen. And it was very much a case of, okay, well, I've signed up for this, so let's just go and make it happen. And, you know, my first day doing business development was doing outreach to European companies. Um, I had the whole speech by my managing director of how difficult this was going to be. I was going to hear no a lot and everything else. And that afternoon, I went back with two director roles, um, actually for a financial institution in Switzerland. And he kind of looked at me and went, what? Like, <laughs> uh, and I was like, how do you negotiate a contract? Because I think that's probably the next step. And I've got to be honest, like, you know, it never really stopped from there. Um, but if I, if I think about, you know, how did I approach it? I, I didn't have any training. So I just did what I thought was right. Okay. And, and that was very kind of, um, and let's say candidate centric, everything I did was flipping. So there wasn't cold calling into HR. There wasn't any of this. Um, you know, naturally I'm not the guy that will steamroller someone. It's just not really my style. So I kind of went in with a partnership mentality into these leaders who had massive problems. It took the time to get to know them. <laughs> and then really just popped the question of like, can I help? Is, is, would it be helpful if, you know, I use my specialist knowledge to help you and, and kind of went on that journey with them um, in, in order to, to bring the wrecks and, and start going from there. That was the beginning. And I guess what I've done ever since has really been an evolution of that. Uh, and it really is 
Yeah, and it sounds so cliche, right? Which is, it's not about me. It's about them, right? It's not about my ego. It's not about my sales numbers. It's not about my revenue target. It's about, can I get enough recs, um, you know, to effectively make those targets almost inconsequential, right? When I was at agency, there wasn't a target that I, I ever missed because I had a pipeline that was so big that ultimately I just had to, I just had to fill, fill the roles and keep going. So Alex, can you break that down a little bit further, like in terms of, so you mentioned it's a candidate-centric philosophy and that everything you did was, you said flipping. I have an idea what that means, but maybe you can elaborate. And then you would spark these conversations with decision makers, with leaders who had problems, and then you would listen and learn about what what was happening. And then you would say, well, you know, I'm a specialist in this. Can I help you? But that was very surface level. Can we, can we dig underneath that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let me take a step back, Mark, because um, over time, what has happened is, um, you know, in my brain, I've kind of got a model of of maybe how my functions that I support work, right? Because I have quite a defined space in biotechnology. When I first started, I was in procurement, right? Mm-hmm. Um the, the joy of negotiating procurement salary, by the way, was, was really, <laughs> really challenging. Uh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> That's I, I've, Just a quick story on that. I was um, delivering a three-day training in Dubai a few years ago, and we were in this Holiday Inn in Dubai, and we were in one room, and it was a, it was a French company that had you know, offices in Dubai, and they wanted me to train other people. So I was doing that. Right next door, there was a training for procurement specialists on how to negotiate, right? So it was kind of like the bad guys were in the other room next to us. They were learning how to try and get our fees down, and we were trying to do the opposite. Yeah, that's that. That is hilarious. I'm surprised you guys didn't come by and have a guest guest slot. It would have been yeah, that would have been fun. I should have thought of that. Yeah, <laughs> um, so yeah. I I mean, and maybe this is a music thing as well, Mark. Which is that, and not to get too uh, too big scale about this, right? But every piece of music is made up of of little pieces, like little bars, and each bar has has notes, right? And every business system is made the same way. And every business and every function pretty much follows an evolution or, or a pattern of evolution. So when I worked in procurement, right, there's procurement, like the first stage of procurement was really tactical stuff, right? They've never had anybody in control of contracts before. So they hire someone and they just start trying to nail these things down as hard as they can, um, you know, trying to get some control, trying to bring it back from the hiring managers and, and, put it through a centralized contact. Um, The second part is, you know, really something which is about squeezing more margin, right? So they've negotiated all these contracts at whatever, 30%, I wish. Um, And then, you know, really they're turning the screw. So they're pushing your numbers down, 25, 20, so on and so forth. And typically what happens is they go too far. So all of a sudden, right, they're they're saying, hey, will you do this for 12%? And, and, you know, the best agencies are going, hell no, like, we're out of here, see ya. And, and so then they start to struggle with the service level that they get. Mm-hmm. And then they come back to more of a strategic approach and say, well, what is the value that you can create me? What does that look like? And that's where we start to get into the conversation about, you know, what are the, what are the KPI deltas, right? So on their side, where is stuff going wrong? And this is one of my favorite questions to ask is like, mm. if we look at KPIs, where are things failing? Like, how do you measure success? You know, is it speed to fill? Is it length of tenure in the role? Is it being able to cr- cross multiple areas and start to understand that picture? And the funny thing is what I've just explained about that model of where procurement is, I would ask those questions too. Like in your shoes right now, what is the maturity of, of the function, right? How is mm. your success being measured? Because at the end of the day, if you're a vendor, your job is to make someone else more successful. If Correct. If person, 
they've got to be more successful. If it's the hiring manager, they want to be more successful. If it's the business, they want to be more successful. So it's it's literally got nothing to do with us. And it's all about how do you help and empower someone else to go on and meet these levels, throw in a couple of um, you know, stories about different clients that you've helped and how you took them from zero to like 105% of wherever they are. Now we start to get some traction, right? If you can get some champions in industry to come around and say, you know what, Mark's the best thing that I've ever seen in this space. I mean, you know, everything gets a lot easier, right? It definitely does. Yeah, absolutely. So that's cool. I like um, I, I like everything I'm hearing so far. And the, this catchphrase is one that I've used myself. It's not about you, right? Uh, and because it's it's human nature to think from your own point of view, right? But in order to influence other people, you have to shift that. And it's hard, but you have to try and shift that perspective, get outside of yourself and see it from their point of view, you know, because, and then suddenly you'll be able to get responses to your emails or, you know, get people to connect with you on the phone more easily. So I have a document, I, I do these copy critique clinics with our clients where they share email like templates or, you know, whatever kind of marketing materials they're drafting. And I have Mark's 10 copywriting commandments. And number one is it's not about you, right? Your audience, you, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, so that's super interesting. <clears throat> and then, so, but this uh, candidate-centric approach and sure. like without being extroverted and without being trying to steamroller people, you're winning all these wrecks and having, uh, you know, building a significant pipeline. Could you just fill in some of the um, the details for that? Yeah. So, I mean, with any good, sales approach, right? There's uncovering the initial need. But I think the next part is tracking it because it would be nice to think that everybody goes, you know what? My rec is open now. And thank you. So I'm so glad you called me, right? It doesn't really happen. Um, yeah. I think what, what really happens is people go, you know what? This, this conversation has been interesting and I'd like to hear from you again. Uh, it's the classic dating thing, right? Uh, that's mm -hmm. day one. What's day two? Um, <laughs> and then it's about like how how are you going to check back in with them, right? And 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 again, do you still have that value driven approach? Um, and even on the check in, right? Don't just ring them up and go, "Hey, is that job open yet?" <laughs> that's not going to work. Right. I'm just right. calling to touch base and see if you're you know yeah. ready to hire yet. Yeah, that's right. I'm just see, I'm just calling the touch base and see whether or not I can make some money from you, right? <laughs> this seems like a silly conversation. Um, it's more kind of look, you know, just wanted to check in. I know you'd said that you know, you had this challenge coming up, and I was wondering if you if you need any help at this point in time. I know it sounds like the same thing, but again, it's the framing of it because mm. one is putting them at the center of it, and one is putting you at the center of it. So mm. you put them at the center of it, and you know, I've, I've heard of all sorts of systems about how to keep track of leads and things like that. Um, there's, there's a guy, actually, one of my old men. Sorry about that. My dog is just not very excited. Um, no worries. Um, I, my old line managers was a guy called Kyle Winterbottom who grew up in the, the contracts market. And he, he told me this story of just having a timeline on the wall every month that was marked and post-it notes. I mean, I mean, this is as old school as it gets, right? But like a big timeline and as a team, they would stick their leads on this timeline. So when they were in an office, they had a visual reference point, right? Everybody had different colored post-it notes and then they would come back and, you know, at that month would come along and they would grab the post-it note and they would, they would go from there uh, and see, you know, just kind of follow up. Now, obviously we can do that slightly more technologically advanced with CRMs and tasks and outlook and, you know, all of those different things. But it's, it's really about being diligent. But when we follow up, making mm. sure that again, you're putting them first. Would you like to make the transition from pure contingency to being a retained recruiter? Do you want to be respected? as a true business partner by your clients while increasing your average fee? If so, then clearly you need to do something different. You can't just keep doing what you're doing and expect a different result. 
Our sponsor, iIntro, gives you a turnkey solution for winning retained searches and managed service agreements at higher fees. You will take business away from your competitors because you can actually show the client a unique methodology in a very tangible way and demonstrate conclusively how you will improve their staff retention and reduce their total cost per hire while also saving hours of management time. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Book a free consultation. There's no obligation. And if you mention that you listen to this podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount on any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. So what is your formula there? So I guess to just back it up to the step before, you're having conversations with people in your marketplace and you're trying to bring value to those conversations. And that's like the first state, right? You're trying to find, you're trying to make a connection with someone so that they want to have a second date, I guess, to use your earlier analogy, right? But then how do you agree on what that time frame is? Because sometimes people will say, well, you know, check back with us in six months, right? But sure. that might be a brush off or it might be genuine, but then you or you might call them in six months, but then actually the problem has really come to a head in two or three months, way earlier than they kind of projected and you've missed the opportunity, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So there's a kind of, what's your formula for decoding? <laughs> when they say, you say like, what's the next step? How, you know, when should we be in touch again? Or I don't know, I'd like to hear how you frame that question. Uh, and they say, you know, well, let's talk again in three months. How do you decode what that truly means? That's that's a great point. Um, and I think what I would say is obviously don't leave it to six months, right? Because everything, I just think that everything has a contract uh, approval process and a negotiation. So if, you, if that takes four weeks, don't wait yeah. six months, right? You have to be there four and a half weeks uh, or sorry, four and a half months or something like that before yeah. that time. So the first thing. I think the, the second thing is also when you're checking back in, how are you checking back in, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I know I mentioned this before, but like, are you checking in with that person or are you checking in on this reg? So mm. I'm, <laughs> I send a lot of messages which are like, hey, we haven't spoken um, for, uh, you know, it seems like ages. Uh, I'd just love to check in with you. Mm. I'm not asking about the rec. I'm not asking about the role. Mm -hmm. And what I'm doing is once we get on the phone, we have that conversation. I see how their life is going, what has changed, right? Where are they? Um, then I will ask about the role. I think there's also another thing that in that first discovery call, what you want to think about is what are the inflection points for the business that you're supporting? Right. So in the world of biotech, um, they have clinical trials. These clinical trials are like milestone markers in terms of business survival, um, as well as program survival. So program, I mean medicine, which is, is going through an approval process. So if somebody says, look, we've got critical phase two data coming out, and it kind of sounds like I'm talking in code here, but um, really what they're saying is, right, at this point, there is a huge value inflection point to our business. And so that's the number one thing, right? It's coming. It's coming, right? They're telling you that there is this deadline, right? Um, if Imagine you're working with a software company. It could be a launch date for a new module. It, it could be a, you know, a whatever it is, right? Somebody somewhere typically has a deliverable that will create a huge amount of value to their company once it happens. Even if you are a product, right, we've got, to, we've got to manufacture X amount of stuff by this date, or I've got to run a full SAP implementation in order to launch whatever, right? That is the key point. That's their focus. That's their goal. So now yep. it's about getting in beforehand to check up on how is that goal going, right? Last time we spoke, Mark, you you mentioned that actually you had to do this full SAP implementation. And at that point, you might be thinking about actually bringing some more people into the team. We might need some extra expertise. So how are you getting on with that? Um, I mean, what's the story right now? Okay, this is brilliant, Alex, because 
What this points to, I think often when people schedule callbacks with clients or prospects, they're somewhat arbitrary. But the difference is you're really understanding what is happening in the business and what those key inflection points are. What are the deliverables? What are the deadlines? What are those inflection points that where value will be created? And then you have a real understanding of that individual's goals, deadlines, you know, targets. As you mentioned earlier, how is their performance evaluated? What are their deliverables? And then you're checking in with them about that goal and whether they're on track and if there's anything you can do to help them to achieve that goal. It's a very different conversation. Um, So that's, I've never heard someone explain it that way before. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'll, I'll I'll push it a level up just for fun, okay. um, which is, are we recruiters or are we people that drive business results by building the right teams? Because if we are a business consultant, if we are somebody that understands the strategy that this company has to go on or, or go through, and we say, do you have the right people for the next leg of the journey? Because the reality is that Your team that builds a company and your team that gets it to, you know, maybe their first product is rarely the same team that gets them to a multi-product portfolio, which is rarely the same team that gets them to, you know, massive acquisition or exit or something like that. You know, there are some people who buck this trend, Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, well done. Um, So, but we've got to think like that and we've got to be able to, to see the patterns. Because the thing is, if we're just doing this with one company, Mark, in one industry, you you could think, oh, this is just its own little kind of capsule. It's not. This pattern repeats time and time again across different clients. So we can then start to ask questions, which would say something along along the lines of, do you know what, it's interesting. I was working with another client, very similar to you, about this kind of head count, doing this kind of thing. And what they found was that they were really struggling making that transition between, you know, getting to their first product and actually opening up a multi-product portfolio. Is is that something that you're experiencing at this point in time? And, you know, do you have a do you have a plan in place to solve it? Because you know, what they did was they did this. And here's how I helped them go through that. So now what you're doing is you've become a commentator or an, I, I hate to use the word advisor because I think it's overused to be honest mm-hmm. with you, but you're being really consultative about sharing and giving maybe little golden nuggets that other businesses have done. Now, obviously you can't break an NDA, but you know, a, a little golden nugget about where another company has gone and we know the people to do it. That's the secret part, right? We know where you want to go. We know who can get it done. I love this, Alex. That's really, really strong. So, um, yeah, immediately, if you, this is one of the advantages of being a niche market specialist, right? Is that the patterns within that particular industry, you start to learn those and you know what those common challenges are. You know what the shared kind of objectives and goals are. And of course, there's going to be individual variation from one company to the next, but broadly, You'll understand what are the common challenges, what are the pain points, and what are the, you know, what's the, you know, dream outcome for your ideal customer. And from there, assuming you've already had success in that particular industry, you'll start to develop reference points, case studies, uh, examples, really rich um, uh, you know, examples that they, your ideal prospect can relate to exactly. because they're on a similar journey and immediately you're no longer a recruiter, you are an advisor. And without breaking NDAs, because you can generalize, you can amalgamate like 10 different client stories into a kind of pattern. And then you can pull out examples of specific companies to keep it, you know, believable and and, and yeah. credible. But uh I think this is this is brilliant. I would I would actually say, Mark, there's also an exercise that you can do with people, 
Mm-hmm. And I would encourage anyone to do this, right? If you think you're a market specialist, right? Make a timeline and at one side put zero and at the other side put 10, right? And then plot where your clients are in terms of maturity on that timeline. And then ask yourself each of those different points, how do you recognize how mature that client is? Because mm. you should be able to, to know every single step between a brand new company in this space just getting going and mm-hmm. one of like the big powerhouses, right? Because the reality is their challenges are wildly different. Bigger the company, the more political it gets. Always the way, right? So now we're talking about people with razor sharp stakeholder skills, somebody that can really, um, you know, work cross functionally between teams, all of those things. And and again, this is the this is the meat of your story, right? And the thing is, I didn't wake up one day knowing all this stuff about biotech, right? I didn't read two million books. What I did was I've probably spoken to two million people and and their stories, right? This this is why when I said look, people's stories about their own career, that has all the information, that has all the gold. And all we need to be is curious because mm. if you say to someone, hey, you worked at this startup, what did you go through? What was that like? There they are. They're just giving you all the information. And if you're just writing that down on a timeline and being like, oh, my God. And if the first person says that these were my challenges and you speak to somebody else who worked at a similar company, right, similar style company, ask them. You know, it's interesting. I asked this question of somebody else about what did they experience in this startup? And they said that they kind of experienced these things. How about you? And they'll go, do you know what? I did experience some of those things, but different here. And also this bit was a bit different as well. Go to another person. Say, I asked this question. I spoke to two people. Here's some of the things that I found out. And, and share them with them. Now what you've got is three sets of answers where you were already a market expert because if you turn up to the fourth person and go, you know, it's really interesting. I speak to a whole bunch of people. I hear all these different answers as to what people experience at this company. It could be this. It could be that. It could be that. You are not the same as every other recruiter because you're already talking about their language. You're already in that story. Your credibility is already off the charts because you're already demonstrating that you know their world. I love it. This is fascinating, Alex. We actually have an exercise with our clients where we get them to write their ideal client profile, or we call it ideal avatar, right? But what we find is the first pass, people are just making a bunch of stuff up. They don't really, really know because it's got questions on there like, what keeps this you know, client awake at night? What are their biggest frustrations on a day-to-day basis? What are their KPIs? How is their performance measured? Um, what are they trying to achieve? What are their, et cetera. And people have a kind of rough idea. So then the next step of the exercise is conducting avatar interviews. So basically what that looks like is actually go and talk to the people who have those exact job titles in those type of companies, the same ones that you want to target. It could be uh, a, an existing client. It could be a candidate. It could be, but they have to meet the criteria in terms of their job title, the industry sector, et cetera, that you're trying to get more of, right? And then you interview them, ask them all those questions. And that exercise is so valuable. I would definitely encourage listeners to, to do that for themselves because the, the level of conversation you can then have with others who you want to do business with is, um, well, it's on another level, but also when whenever you're writing, I want to talk to you about writing. Sure. When you're writing, whether it's emails, LinkedIn posts, you know, anything that you're putting out into the world, if it's written specifically for your ideal client or candidate, you know, avatar, using the appropriate language and telling the stories and addressing the pain points that you know for a fact, you know, that you know, because you've spoken to enough of them then it's going to resonate and people will respond. Otherwise, if it's too generic, it's just going to get lost in the in the noise. Um, you, uh, I know that your writing is important to you and it's a skill that you've yeah. like really worked on. Could you talk a little bit about your relationship to writing and why 
you feel it's so important? Yeah. Um, this is quite interesting, Mark. Like when I was at school, teachers used to say, Alex has so many ideas. It's just a shame that none of them end up on paper. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, me and writing, I didn't think I could write even, even through university. I really struggled to write essays. It, it, the whole thing was just a bit of a nightmare, to be honest with you. And there, there was this point in my career, um, you know, ultimately going into recruitment and realizing that the very first step of any recruitment process is typically a message sent out. Okay, could be a cold call, but let's be honest, one in, in, in the US, probably one in 100 of those works. <laughs> so I could spend all my time making 100 cold calls, or I could spend that time getting a lot better at writing to try see whether or not I could get a higher response rate. And the first thing I did is get a book on grammar. Like there's, there's a wonderful book called Eats, Shoots and Leaves. Oh yeah, I've heard of that one. And that book, it will make you roar with laughter, especially if you've got a slightly, uh, probably dark British sense of humor, um, you, you'll cackle. Like you, it's fun to read. I've never seen anybody make grammar interesting, right? But that, that'll elevate your game by a good by 20%, right? There's nothing worse than receiving a message and it's talking about something dead serious and sensible and how it's going to advance your life with a spelling mistake or a silly grammatical error in it or someone's used the wrong your. Like, come on, right? This, this is just basic stuff, right? Um, the next thing, um, which I think is is really fundamental as well is this idea of of narrative control so um how do we um someone else is at my door clearly uh so how do we um really tell a story right somebody once said that the the role of the first paragraph is to, to get somebody to go to the second paragraph right and you can take totally. that theme all the way through but when we interview for consultants at phase three, and, and certainly, you know, especially when I was hiring a lot of juniors and things like that, the number one thing that we looked for were good writers. Uh, and opposed to ask the interview questions about, you know, tell me a time when, right? I would ask them to send me a written format of it. Mm. Like, so shoot me, uh, you know, within a certain number of words, of words describe a time when, you overcame a huge challenge in your life and what did that look like? And, and what I'm looking for is can somebody hit that narrative style, give you a synopsis of the situation, then put you in the middle of it and then tell me, you know, why that would make somebody right for a job if they're writing to me, right? Or how this advances someone's career. Because what we've got to be able to do is describe a situation so well that somebody can see themselves in the role before they take the role. Totally. Yeah, I love it. That's a great exercise. In fact, I, I don't know why we don't do more written exercises when we're interviewing for recruitment consultants. Um, now that you mention it, that's pretty obvious, but I don't think many people do. Yeah. So can we back up a stage though? Like, why did you decide that getting better at writing was important because uh truth is mark i don't like cold calling right and ah okay and I, I, okay a whole bunch of your audience um <laughs> not really I'm, it's people gonna this, be sitting there scowling shaking their head i think it's a waste of time <laughs> in, in it's funny you're well you're gonna cold divide cold. the audience because half of them are with you going yay we can succeed without cold calling and half of them are like oh no you have then, to get on the phone so, oh, 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 now I don't disagree there, right? So yeah. here's the thing is I just don't think cold calling is our first step anymore. Right. I right? hear you. Yeah. Because let's be honest, we've got so much automation at our fingertips. We've got yeah. LinkedIn automation. We've got email cadencing. We've got all of that stuff, right? We, in mails now have cadencing. Thanks, LinkedIn. A little late, but thanks. Um, <laughs> and I think what's interesting as well, and and in fact, just maybe something back on, on the writing thing, right? When I started in recruitment, emails didn't exist. So of course. Ima imagine just pitching jobs like Twitter, right? You had like 300 characters and I had to tell, I basically had to say, hi, hiring for this, talking about all these things, which are super exciting. 
um, you know, very sexy stuff, which will bring you towards us. Bang, 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 bang. Please could, uh, you know, please can you send me the best number to discuss? Right, three hundred characters to get your message a point. Where's the three hundred character so, count limit? You know, like in a, a connection box on LinkedIn. Oh, I see, I see. Okay, gotcha. That's, that's all we used to have. That was it. Got it. You know, and you'd sit there and you'd open all your windows and you copy and paste from Word and write in a name. Like it's not rocket science kind of stuff. It was a, a <laughs> okay. bit, bit of a volume game. But so I it's funny just to t- uh dot the I's and cross the T's here. I often say that a LinkedIn connection is the modern cold call. Yeah, I I, I would believe that for sure. So um okay, cool. So you decided, do you know what? I'm not I'm I don't like the cold calling, so I need to find a better way, a more efficient way of um doing the top of the funnel, initiating that first uh conversation so i i agree with what you're saying that the telephone is still integral to what we're what we do 100%. in terms of making a connection qualifying building relationships it's just not the very first step in the in the sales process i get that yeah uh, and it's i mean everybody has to be comfortable on the phone doing what we do right and you know there is a mental hurdle it's a performance at the end of the day Right when you pick up a phone, and it's my music background, right? Um, yeah, there's a spot. There's a spotlight on you, and you're playing a solo. Yeah, like that's that's what it is. You're exposed. That's that's the way it is. But if you've done your homework and you've done your practice, you know you know that you can handle it. Right. Good. Good analogy again. So so you realize, okay, I need to get better at writing so that I yeah. can book more meetings without cold calling. Right. And so you read the book, Each Shoots Leaves about grammar what what ha- happened next so i i think from there it was it's actually quite similar to what you were talking about when it comes to personas mark um i would say that for every role there is a list of frustrations that those candidates have mm-hmm. um doesn't matter what role it is right um if you were to say and i'll, I'll pick something from my world um which i'll, I'll try and pick something straightforward uh like a vp of manufacturing right a VP of manufacturing has frustrations. Typically, they're at war with the quality department, right? Supply chain are giving them a hard time, right? They're measured on throughput um, and um, effectively their ability to deliver at a certain spec, right? Um, they're normally talking about efficiency. Um, they're always looking for a way to improve something. They're dealing with large teams. So, <clears throat> what I would be doing is I, I kind of sat down and was like, well, why don't I write my message <clears throat> in a way that covers the the frustrations, right? So, and talk about this new client and how they're addressing the frustrations. So I'm not going to sit there and say, are these your frustrations? Would you like a solution, right? No. What I'm going to say is I've got a client and ultimately they're in a scenario where they're trying to roll out the following things. And then what I'm listing is all of the solutions to the frustrations that they currently have. Right? Mm, so interesting. We're, we're building about, oh, sorry, we're talking about maybe, um, you know, proactively building a coalition with the quality department. Um, we're talking about, you know, investment in new methodologies to improve throughput through the use of automation. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm shooting from the, the hip here. Um, we're talking about, and again, go through and through and through, because what you want somebody to say and the mental trigger is, I can be more successful there than I am here because I don't right. have to wade through so much BS. That's a, Okay, that's a really good point is, does the candidate believe they're going to be more successful at your client company than they are at their current company? That's right. a great, yeah, yeah, that's a good and you've, paradigm. You've got the cultural story as well, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like not just the, the practical things, but do people, uh, is there a culture there which they would want to be part of? Of course. And I know it's really obvious, right? But over time, people get ground down by the system that they're in. So when they're kind of a bit compressed or a bit beaten up and you turn around and say, you know what, this is like a really non-bureaucratic, high energy, 
get stuff done kind of culture, you know, people start to be like, oh, yeah, I remember when life was like that. I would like to go do that again. So now you've got be more successful in a place where, you know, I'm going to have a lot of fun doing it. And, I, I, you know, that's where we start to see the biggest results. Fantastic. All right. So that makes sense. So on this writing journey, you're pro- proactively seeking to improve your writing skills. You're also really thinking about the persona or the, the, the person who you're writing to. And that's your message earlier about it's not about you. So understanding them. Uh, but then what else have you done? Like, talk, talk to me about what you did to improve your writing and then how that translates in real time. Like, what kinds of stuff are you doing that you feel has helped you to achieve the incredible level of success that you have? Hmm. If there was, if there was one, if we can think more tact- tactical, Mark, um, mm-hmm. the first thing is, Go and ask everybody what what pisses them off about their job, um, and 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 just know that for everything, right? So exactly what you said, right? Don't make it up, but take the answers from the horse's mouth. Yes, that's that's totally the best thing. Um, because you could be the best rider in the world, but if you're talking about the wrong thing, yeah, you're not going to get anywhere, right? Um, in terms of the the real time, um element of it um, and that side of things i think there's also how do we how do we change the style to um how do we change the style to to elicit a response from different types of people right so we Mm. mentioned extroverts and we we mentioned introverts right let's let's take this another way executives who have no time versus Mm -hmm. you know something that has more time so we actually changed the style of our outreach to the point where I'll write one in bullet points, I'll write one in paragraphs, I'll write one in bullet points and paragraphs. Because, you know, if somebody sees a massive block of text come across to them, they're going to be like, I have time for this, I'm out of here, right? If you're following up on a cadence with that person and saying, um, Mark, I'm not sure if you saw my last email um, regarding this role, would be really grateful if you can review the below and you've changed it to bullet points. They just go scan, 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 scan. And at the end, you've got to make it a yes or no, right? Um, yep. Or like, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the if close, right? And okay, sure, tell me that one. I'm not sure this is a thing. This might just be a me thing. But like, if you're the sort of person that is really excited by this type of situation or your sort of person that would ultimately like to have enormous impact on your industry and end user and would like to be an environment where you are empowered to absolutely do what you do best. Please, can you send me the best number to discuss? Like it. And, and you've just, again, you've just put them in the middle of it and said, all you need to do is send me your telephone number. Don't ask them for an email. Don't ask them for times. Don't ask them for availability. Because if you got the telephone number, they're not getting away from you. <laughs> that is a cool distinction, actually, because most people, finish, like their call to action at the end of an email is to try and get a, an appointment, right? Like it's either, is this something that would be of interest? Yes or no. Or it's, when would be a good time for us to discuss right. this further, right? Or here's a link to my calendar, you know, choose a time that works for you. But you're saying, just let me know the best number to reach you. That's, I like that as yeah. a call to action. And I think what you can do next as a follow-up is, it's, let's say you are short on time, like Calendly, I think it's brilliant. I mean, it creates calendar mayhem sometimes, but um, I think, you know, you can then follow up and say, look, I'm, I'm actually... I just want to say the response rate to this role has been off the charts. So I'm actually going to have to lean on some technology in order to get things booked. So um, mm. please could you use, the, for efficiency, please could you use the following link to book directly on my calendar, right? I always think it's a problem if you send somebody a calendar link with no real explanation because I think it's cold. I think it's impersonal. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. It, it almost gives the impression that my I'm more important than you. You book into my calendar, right? There we go. So you definitely need to frame that correctly. Um, so, wow, I can't believe the time has flown. I feel like there's so much more we could do. We might have to do a, a, a part two of this, Alex. Um, what have I not asked you about that you were hoping that we'd get a chance to, to talk about today? That's a good question. Um, I think... I think we've covered the basics, Mark, right? Which is like, how, how does your approach, your own mental approach affect your success within recruitment? And there's that. I think there's another thing as well, which is what is the difference between, and, and again, I'm going to upset the audience here, but what is the difference between the different levels of search, right? So, mm -hmm. so what changes between being a contract recruiter, a contingent recruiter, an executive search recruiter? What is difference when? What is the difference when you're placing a CEO, a COO, a C-suite, anybody, right? VPs compared to senior managers or managers. And, Good question. What is the and, difference? <laughs> right. I think this might need this might need a second part. But um, as somebody that started off placing managers and senior managers, right, and rose through the ranks, the only the only reason I could is because I stayed in touch with my candidates as they have mm. progressed so have i right they've taken me with them yes because they said you know i really enjoyed working with alex when i did this let's do that the other thing is at the top level you are expected to be an absolute expert of your domain right you should be able to have a conversation with the ceo not be terrified understand where is his business going you should be able to have a conversation with a VP about what it takes to actually become a CEO. Like you should know. And I think that the way that you know is by interviewing those people at the top. And again, looking for the patterns, right? Mm. If you were to say, what are the barriers to entry to a certain level? Map those out, right? Every single time you're talking to a VP, an SVP or whatever. Like what did they have to overcome to get there? What you'll end up with is a, a roadmap to success. And the reality is, you know, people don't know the path because they're in the middle of the forest, right? Right. We're we are above it. We get to yes. see the patterns and our job is to lead them through it. That's a great analogy. I know that you have helped 25 individuals move from director to C-suite where they've had a huge impact to drive profits and, you know, which ultimately, you know, improves patient outcomes in your, in your uh, industry. So that's so cool that you've, you're sitting above the forest, your candidates are maybe a director and they're in the middle of the forest, but you can see the path that they need to take to successfully get through to the other side. Um, yeah, that's powerful. And, and I think the thing that you'll also have is, when you can say to somebody, hey, you really remind me of this other person. Uh, do you know this person? And they're like, no, I've got no idea who that is most of the time, right? And you can say, well, look, check out their LinkedIn profile. See the moves that they made. <clears throat> Let me talk to you about why that enabled them to become where they are now. Um, like, a, a, And I'll, I'll take us a step further, Mark, and sorry to use up a bit more time. but No, that's cool. Um, in, in my world of biotech, you know, a huge amount of the industry revolves around um, raising capital. Uh, yes. Now, I'm a recruiter that specializes in a domain within biotech, <clears throat> but I can now talk pretty fluently about what is the, the mechanism for a VC capital raise. Because by the time you're at that end level, that, that C-suite level, right, these people are no longer a functional specialist, right? They're not a not a head of operations or anything like that. They're a business leader, right? And they have to be able to stand shoulder to shoulder with the CEO to be able to help him or her go and raise the money for that business. So one of the, the coaching elements that I will lean on really heavily is to say to people, look, do you have connections into the VC market? You might be a technical genius. But if there's two technical geniuses and one of them has VC connections and can mm -hmm. bring somebody to, that could give the company money to the table versus somebody who's just a technical genius, well, the all-around business leader is going to get picked. 
So you For need sure. to start developing these things. How do you do that? And then I've got a strategy which I can share with them about how they get into, into that world and how they start to develop. So that kind of, again, it's about insight into the market and about into the client base to help these people grow, which I guess goes back to where we started, right? Which is, it's not about me, it's about them. Absolutely. So the three key topics we've wanted to hit today, I think we've, we've checked them all off. So how human connection elevates you above the competition, check. How your ability to write changes everything, check. And how market insight can be used to build trust. I think we accomplished what we wanted to today, Alex, but I feel like there's so much more that uh, we need to talk about. So, um, so hopefully this has been a good first date and you'll come back for, for another one <laughs> in, the, uh, in the future. That's it. Are we going Dutch or are you buying one? <laughs> it's on me. <laughs> Fantastic. I would love to come back if, uh, if people would like to hear it. And uh, I'd be happy to share whatever I can. All right, Alex. Awesome. Listen, have a great day. And by the way, who your co-stars, uh, the two fluffy co-stars, what are they? Yes. their names? So there's Benny and Charlie. Um, so there are two Labradoodles running around. Um, you know, they own the house. They run the house. I just pay for it. So. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, thanks for getting up early to, uh, to record this with me. No problem at all. Thanks very much, Mark. Thanks, Alex. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really want to help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.